so uh, it's hard to believe, but the very first votes in the presidential election of 2024 are cast this Monday, tomorrow, during the Iowa caucuses. And as I mentioned last week, uh, for me personally, I feel like I'm still dealing with PTSD from 2020, uh, because 2020 was a mess. I was so disheartened, discouraged, frankly embarrassed by the way that our country uh, took sides and fought each other uh, in 2020 that I'm still kind of reeling from it. And my most disheartening reality of 2020 was uh, just the way that church people, the way that Jesus people, the way that we jumped in the fray and we jumped into the mess. And uh, here at Bridgeway, we desire uh, to help build a community and to be a community where we bring our whole selves under the way of Jesus, or as some theologians would call, under the lordship of Jesus. And that's our physical, our emotional life, our spiritual life, our public life under him as well. And so the way that we engage politics, the way that we engage this year, it matters to God. And um, we're stepping into these, you know, dicey, treacherous waters of faith and politics because I believe that there are some decisions that we need to make that are vital to who we are becoming when it comes to engaging the process this year. And I think these decisions are actually more important, more vital than who you will punch a ballot for and vote for. It's, but it's how we'll actually engage in the process. I mean, I have this vision that there's a way that we can walk forward through these next months leading up all the way up through the second week in November um, to where we tell a story. We tell a story that's better than what we saw in 2020. We tell a story with the way that we live and engage this process that we're actually proud of. Can you imagine if we tell a story with our lives through the way that we engage this political season where we look more like Jesus on the other side of it than we look like what our cable news preferences are telling us to look like? And that's why we're engaging this conversation, not to tell you who to vote for, but to encourage you to make some decisions about the way that we'll engage this political process to look more like Jesus. And I know there's like this pensive thing in the air whenever you talk about religion and politics because it's been done so poorly and what I think very thoughtlessly in our culture. But I want to set us all at ease. Uh, we've made some ground rules for this series that we're holding to, and I want you to hold me to as well. Uh, here are the ground rules for decisions 2024. The first one is this, Bridgeway is and will always be a politically diverse church. We're not a Republican church. We're not a Democrat church. We're a very uh, purple, red and blue kind of church. And we're going to stay that way. We don't think that we should align with any kind of political philosophy because the way of Jesus transcends and goes beyond that. And maybe like in your home this morning, if you're sitting on a couch with your spouse or your kids, maybe for you, you guys are like one of those sides. Maybe for you, you are a house at odds with each other and you're maybe more of a purple house. But we just have the vision that our church should look like that as well, not to take sides at all because we think we really lose out when we do that. The second ground rule is this, that we believe that there is no official Christian political party. And we're going to really talk about this a lot today. Uh, but we believe there's no official Christian political party, though. Um, the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, does not fit into those nice modern boxes of our partisan teams. And we can um, have our lives, our hearts, our minds transformed by the law of Christ to love God and to love others and land in different places in how we vote. And any time that a party or a leader says that they're speaking for Jesus or all Christians, man, uh, we make a mess out of things. And I think as I'll try to explain today, we um, really lose the plot. 
And the third ground rule we're working with, take a deep breath, Bridgeway will not be endorsing a presidential candidate in 2024. Like I said last week, um, I really like our tax-exempt status. It's really, really great for us financially as a church. And we don't, we're not going to play that game. We're not going to convince you to make a decision for a political candidate. Uh, so what we really want to do is help you engage in this season in a Christ-like way, in a way that tells a better story than we've seen religious people tell in the last couple of presidential elections, a story that we're proud of. So each week we're making a decision together. I'm challenging you to make a decision for the way that you'll engage this political season. Just to recap, last week, here was the deep theological decision I was asking you to make. Decision number one, I will not be a jerk to others about the 2024 election. Uh, We said that we don't need any more jerks for Jesus, that being a jerk doesn't get the job done. Instead of being a jerk, we want to actually listen and engage the other side of the conversation to learn why they believe what they believe. We want to see every single person, the candidates we vote against or the parties that we don't align with, we want to see them as divine image bearers, divine icons, and then we honor them even if we have profound disagreements with them. And today, decision number two that we're going to be talking about, I put it this way. Decision number two, that I will give my highest allegiance to the kingdom of God, not a political party or candidate. That I will give my highest allegiance to the king and the kingdom of God, not a political party or candidate. You know, allegiance is a funny thing. I think we all think back our first uh, idea or experience with allegiance was going to school and we would say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. I think they still do that in most schools where we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. But there are lots of different things that we pledge allegiance to in our lives that we show fidelity, faithfulness, loyalty, devotion to in our lives. And they're a lot smaller than our country uh, often. Many people have allegiance to brands of cars, car brands, uh, the only drive one brand. I remember years ago, I'll confess in front of all of you guys, I drove a Ford, which in this town is a cardinal sin sometimes, but I drove a Ford and the amount of times I'd just be like getting gas and someone would be like, fix or repair daily, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what I did wrong. For me, like, I don't really care about the car brand too much. I just want the best sound system possible. So something that really bumps, uh, that's really what I'm looking for inside of a car. Uh, some people have like airline brands that they're really showing allegiance to. They'll only fly Delta. They'll only fly Southwest. Uh, and that's just not me at all. Like uh, most of the time and the, the staff team that I get to work with here at the church, they'll make fun of me because when we have to travel together, I go with the cheapest thing possible, like Spirit Airlines. It's like, you'll probably get there. We'll get there. Or even this last week with the news story that came out with, I think it was Alaska Airlines that had the door come off. I'm like, I would still fly Alaskan if it was the cheapest option to get someplace. I'm just that guy. That's where my allegiance is to the cheapest experience in travel. Uh, we show allegiance to sports teams, don't we? We like wear the jerseys. We go crazy. Uh, We follow the team and the rosters. We show allegiance to sports teams. Like we root against other teams, even when they're not playing our teams, because we hate them. We hate other cities and states because of our sports team and the rivalry that lays between them. Um, The way that we have allegiance to sports teams, actually like it plays into our attitude and our emotions as well. I remember at the very beginning of the NFL season, I saw this meme I want to share with you guys. 
Time to let a professional football team that doesn't even know I exist determine my entire mood for the next four months. And that is exactly what it's like living with me. It's so embarrassing, but if the Colts won, like I'm in the best mood, if they lost, I'm still reeling from that a winner end game that we lost to the Texans last week, right? Like it controls us and it shows that our loyalty, our devotion is towards a sports team. Many of us, uh, we have allegiances to political preference or a partisan political party as well. Where we say that I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm a Libertarian or sometimes we call ourselves an Independent as well. We have allegiances to these parties. I think it's interesting uh, to consider like uh, we all have these diverse political allegiances, but I I like considering how we got there. And how they tend to be partisan and how we became partisan. Many of us got to our allegiance to a political party because of our parents. We, we parrot what we heard them say around the dinner table or we go the opposite direction and we rebel against what they said and we go in the opposite direction because of how they talked around the dinner table. Many of us find allegiances to a political party or a, a political preference because of our experiences with other people. We might have thought one way, but we had an experience with somebody and it blew our mind it opened our mind, or we have an experience with someone else, and it confirms what we were told around that dinner table as a child, so we stay on that course. Many of us have political allegiances because of our experiences with the government. I talk to people often who have a negative experience with the government to where they're disillusioned with the whole thing because of what they consider incompetence or bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy, so they think government should be smaller. I also have friends that had life-altering, life-changing assistance from the government. And they can't imagine their life without the assistance and the help from the government. So they have a positive view of a larger government. We all have political allegiances and we all come to them through a diverse set of circumstances. Is why we're like, yes, I am this, I am that. And as I consider our political allegiances, I just believe that one of our problems with how we have typically as church people engaged with politics is a problem of disordered allegiances. <laughs> and we all have political convictions, um, preferences. Um, and again, that's, a, that's an okay thing. But again, I want to provoke us to consider a third way of ordering our allegiance to help us consider what our highest allegiance should be and the way that our King Jesus used power and the way that he dealt with people trying to throw allegiance on him. We talk often around our church about the kingdom of God. Um, I've actually, I was told a couple months ago that all you talk about is the kingdom of God. I'm like, that's actually probably a good thing because that's what Jesus talked about more than anything else was the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God not being this place that you go when you die, but it's the reality of what Jesus was bringing. The kingdom of God is the rule, the reign, the way that power is used by God, the way that God orders things. And he talked about this often. And what I want to take us to is the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, because John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, actually struggles with the reality that many of us struggle in as we're trying to understand our allegiance in this world of politics, in this world of Jesus. He struggles with our struggle, and I think we can learn from the way that Jesus responds to him as well about how power really works and what game 
Is Jesus playing, and what's the kingdom of God actually look like? So again, we'll take us to Luke 7. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He's a front runner, a hype man for Jesus, telling everybody that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's telling people to repent and turn and live in his direction, the direction of Jesus. And where we find John the Baptist in Luke 7 is he's in a bit of trouble. He actually made a very political move that got him in trouble. He actually called out King Herod for some scandal in his family, the way that Herod married his, uh, his brother's wife. And there's a bunch of scandal, and John the Baptist calls him out. And then Herod, of course, throws John the Baptist in prison. And so John's in prison, sort of rotting away, and he just keeps getting word and notions about what Jesus is doing and how this Messiah is moving in the world. And earlier in Luke chapter 7, we see that Jesus is doing some wild, upside-down stuff. He heals this Roman centurion's servant's son. He serves the bad guys and their family and brings restoration to them. He actually rises from dead this widow's son earlier in Luke chapter 7, bringing life to death, interrupting funerals. So John gets word of this, and his response is not, yeah, that's awesome, way to go, Jesus. This is how he responds in Luke chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus was doing as he's demonstrating the kingdom of God. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? John's in prison. He sends a couple of his boys to come ask Jesus, like, what are you doing? Like, Jesus, that's some, like, I guess it's nice, these small little moves to where you're helping people, but you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the one who's coming to, like, bring order to the chaos. You're the one who's here to kick butts of Rome and to take names of Rome so that we can punish them and so the people of God can be on top and have all political power and authority again. What are you doing? Should we wait for somebody else? Are you ever going to kick this into gear, Jesus? This is what John is saying. And his expectations are not too far off course when you think about it. The Old Testament, all over the Hebrew Scriptures, there would be this, this talk about a Messiah, a Savior to come and to bring order to things and to truly be king. One of the Psalms, Psalm 47, is something that John would have known by heart and how they would have longed for the Messiah, the king, to do this kind of thing. This is Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great king over all the earth. This is what that king does. He subdued nations under us, people under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended, not descended, has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth, not just our nation, all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. <laughs> I mean, this is the vision of a king that John the Baptist was living with. This was political power. This was punish your enemies, beat your enemies, beat Rome into submission, rise to the top, whip the minions into shape, make sure that they bow down and kiss your ring. He's asking Jesus, are you really the guy? Because it doesn't sound like you're doing king stuff like Psalm 47 was talking about. And I love how Jesus responds 
Jesus doesn't say that he's not the king, but he says if you're looking for a king to live out power that way, man, you're throwing your allegiance to the wrong game. You're putting all your eggs in the wrong basket. So Jesus, and he responds to John in his question. He claps back at his cousin John and says this in Luke 7. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Here's the report. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus responds to John saying, yeah, I'm bringing the kingdom, but it's not the way that you think power looks. And he gives him a sermon of actions and demonstrates his kingdom. And again, his kingdom is how he used his power, how he orders power. And this is what Jesus does is he demonstrates he loves the unlovable. The culture said, no, you can't love them. They don't belong. He loved them. Jesus, in his kingdom, he welcomes and includes outcasts to his table, to his family, saying there's no one outside the gates of this kingdom. Jesus offers forgiveness for all. He restores people that are broken physically, spiritually, and emotionally. This is how Jesus demonstrates his kingdom. This is how he uses his power by giving it away through love. Jesus also describes his kingdom throughout the Gospels. At one point, like again, he describes how he uses power and how his kingdom plays. He describes it as a mustard seed, just this minuscule seed that grows wild and grows into a tree that's big enough to give shade for all the birds, which was a connotation for all the nations to come. It's big enough for everyone Jesus teaches that his kingdom is inhabited by peacemakers, bridge builders, not warriors and those who had conquered, but but those who long to make peace. He says his kingdom is inhabited by those who are meek. And that doesn't mean weakness. It means power that's under control. He says his kingdom is inhabited by those who hunger and thirst and long for righteousness, for the world to be put to right once and for all. Jesus says that the kingdom is among us, that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is inside of us. It's already and not yet fully realized. This is what it looks like when God's in charge, when God has power, his rule and reign, his kingdom. And because of Jesus, it's invading earth. As we like to say around here, it's the up there, heaven coming down here. This is what Jesus is up to, and we get to join him. But just like John We get caught up often. And Jesus, when are you going to come and show your power? When are you going to come and win? When are you going to come and conquer and take out the people that are wrong? When are you going to come and take out the other side who have the wrong thoughts on how our society should be ordered politically? We still get caught up in this question, but which side is God's side? Who do I vote for that God's on their side? Isn't it always interesting how, like, When we ask that question, God's always on our side and how we tend to believe. (laughs) Which side is God on? I mean, we tend to notice that and think about that. We think in these binary terms. We want to know who we should root for to win. 
Uh, it's a funny thing, my four-year-old Jack, uh, we're watching a lot of sports right now, whether that be football the last couple of months, and now NBA basketball, as the Pacers are playing so well, and it's so much fun. He'll always come into the room and be like, hey, Daddy, who are the Pacers playing tonight? And I'll tell them they're playing the Hawks, or they're playing the Knicks, they're playing the Milwaukee Bucks, or whatever it might be. And he'll go, okay, he'll say, go Bucks, go Knicks, go Hawks. And I'm like, buddy, why can't we ever root for the same team? It's because he wants to like have this little competition against me, and he wants to win against me. Like we have this us versus them built into us from a young age, and we want to know who should we be rooting for. And we think the same thing when it comes to politics and it comes to partisanship and Republican or Democrat or anything. We want to know what side God's on. Who should we be rooting for and aligning ourselves with? There's this passage that takes place thousands of years before Jesus in the ancient history of God's people, the Israelites, where God's people had just been miraculously uh, rescued from the Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt. And they're out in the wilderness looking for a promised land. And there's danger on all sides, <laughs> but they're looking for their home. And we find this interesting encounter that happens in Joshua 5. And it shows us this principle about what side God plays when it comes against people versus people. We'll pick up here. Joshua chapter 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man, a shadowy figure, some kind of divine messenger standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Looks like danger. Joshua went up to him and he asked, are you for us or for our enemies? And he, he sees this divine shadowy figure with a sword and he wants to know what side he's on. <laughs> like, if you're representing God, like, what side are you on? Are you on our side? Because we could use some help. I, we need you on our side. If not, we're in real danger. Maybe if we get this figure to join our side or we join his side, maybe then we can win. We can defeat. We can conquer the bad guys, however defining bad guys. But I think it's fascinating what the scriptures tell us, how this shadowy divine figure responds. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither he replied. Neither, he replied. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Are you for us or against us? This messenger from God says, neither. <laughs> Is it possible, you guys, that every time we want God to take sides, and of course when I'm on our side, so that we can take power, so that we can win? Is it possible every time we do that, God says, I'm not taking sides. I'm neither. With our political parties left or right or somewhere in the center, whenever we try to claim God, whenever we try to co-opt him to line up with us politically by taking one issue and ripping Bible verses out of context to make that one issue everything, is it possible that we miss God in the process. And God says, I'm not here to take sides. Is it possible that God's not interested in taking sides? That God's interested in coming and taking over. And taking over, not in the Psalm 47 style, but in a surprising, subversive, beautiful, upside down and sacrificial way. This is a challenging message to us if we have strong political or partisan allegiances. That God's not interested in fitting into your nice partisan box and fighting your battles for you or you using him to fight battles. He's not interested in that game. He doesn't take sides. He takes over. He plays on a whole different plane. 
a whole different realm. I love what author Eugene Cho, pastor and author Eugene Cho, says about this. It's so beautiful. He says, no one has a monopoly on the kingdom of God. And by no one, I'm also speaking of political parties or political leaders or any other human figure or institution. No matter what the experts, leaders, and polls say, no matter what the Pope, Franklin Graham, Rick Warren, Kanye West, Joyce Meyer, Trinity Broadcasting Network, Fox News, or CNN says, the kingdom cannot be contained by our political parties or religious institutions. Thanks be to God for that. Can somebody like in the chat say amen or do some kind of emoji that means amen, right? That is reality that nobody can co-opt, nobody can monopolize the kingdom because it's bigger, it's more beautiful, and it will never, ever change. I like to say it this way, that the kingdom is ushered in not by an elephant or a donkey, but by a lamb. The kingdom is never ushered in by our man-made powers and structures with Republican or Democrat, but it's ushered in. It, it comes to reality. It leaves just heaven and invades earth by a lamb. We talked about this last fall, that Jesus is called a lamb over 29 times in the New Testament alone. And the language and the use of this animal of the lamb, it's so intentional. Jesus is the lamb of God, this lamb that's known for being meek. Mild. And again, meekness is not weakness, but it's power that's confident and under control and not unpredictable, but steady. Jesus is called the lamb, a symbol of reconciliation. Jesus is called the slaughtered lamb. This sacrificial love, others-centered power not being held, but power being given away to others. What would it look like for the people of God to not pledge ultimate allegiance to Democrats, donkeys, Republicans, elephants, but to the lamb and to his kingdom way, the lamb's power? Hear me in this. Just consider this. If God and the kingdom of God doesn't work through popularity contests or winning and defeating the other side, but through losing, through sacrifice and self-sacrificial love and selflessness, if God doesn't work through winning but through losing, maybe we shouldn't put all of our eggs in the basket, all of our confidence in the basket of a system built on winning. Yes, we should care about uh, politics because they affect people, but we shouldn't put all of our hope and all of our confidence and all of our allegiance in that basket because... God ultimately doesn't bring his kingdom through that system. So this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Again, what does it look like for us to give our ultimate allegiance not to a political party or a candidate, but our ultimate allegiance to the king and his kingdom? And to do this, to bring it down to earth for us, I'm reminded of the 90s stand-up comedian Jeff Foxworthy. This is where we all thought we were going, right? Jeff Foxworthy. My dad loved Jeff Foxworthy. I always think of my dad when I think of him. But Jeff Foxworthy, to my understanding, had one joke that he would play through millions of different um, angles. He's the whole idea, you might be a redneck if, or if this, you might be a redneck. Some of my favorite redneck jokes were, you might be a redneck if your idea of a seven-course meal is a bucket of KFC and a six-pack of beer. You might be a redneck. I hope that's not too offensive to somebody out there. <laughs> There's another one. Yeah, you might be a redneck if you've ever been involved in a custody fight over a hunting dog. <laughs> I love that one a lot as well. 
But I want us to use sort of the motif that Foxworthy uses in this joke for us to consider our ultimate allegiances. And I'm going to pause my mic and cough and take a drink of water real fast. So to use the motif of uh, Foxworthy, you know you've made your political preference a higher allegiance than the kingdom when, when you hold tighter to your political identity than your kingdom identity. You know that you've made your highest allegiance to a political preference or party when you do this, when you hold tighter to your political identity than your kingdom identity. Your political identity is your tribe, who you vote for, the people that you agree with. Your kingdom kingdom identity is what God says about you, your belovedness. You're welcome to be a part of his family, of his movement for all of eternity. I mean, one of the dangers, you guys, of our current political climate is the tribal nature of it. And people of faith, we fall into this and we play into this tribal climate all the time, and it's a tragedy. Hear me, when we see our first name as Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative or progressive, when we identify ourselves there first, we lose the plot on our ultimate allegiance. Our partisan and who we vote for blinders have made us so tribal to see people as as enemies that we need to defeat and and it pins us against each other. Guys, we can't as a nation keep going in this direction without some dangerous consequences. And this is not uh, the vision that the scriptures give us of our kingdom identity. Actually, in the book of Revelation, uh, John the Revelator gives us an image of the other side of eternity. What's going on on the other side of life and what some of us call heaven? And it's this picture not of tribal um, places, but it's a picture of one big tribe centered around one name, the name of Jesus. John the Revelator tells us this in Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before, what's the image? The animal before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is the image that we are given, not of tribal politics, but of all tribes, of all people centered around the person of Jesus. This is a current picture of the other side. Let me ask you this. In the way that we engage politics, are we living in a way that this actually sounds like heaven? Or Does this vision that John gives us, does it sound like hell? Like all tribes, all people, all nations, that country, that political party, the people that voted for them, does that make you so uncomfortable that you squirm and the vision that we're given of eternity in heaven sounds more like hell to you? Hear me. This is one of the reasons why we're talking about this, is that your heavenly father wants to transform you He wants to form you spiritually from the inside out in a way in our life today that heaven actually feels like heaven to us and not hell. (laughs) This is where we're going. But when we give our highest allegiance 
to a political party or to a political preference and not our kingdom identity of this type of a kingdom, we miss out. Don't miss this, you guys. Whatever the other side of your personal politics are, they are not enemies to be defeated. They are not people to remove from the equation. They are beloved sons and daughters to be loved and served and welcomed. We've got to see people that way. And we can only do that when we live more with a kingdom identity than a political tribal identity. We have convictions and we have political thoughts. You better believe that I have political convictions and political thoughts. But when those things get in the way of loving people, and when those things cause me to see others as enemies or buffoons or idiots instead of people first, we lose the plot. The second Foxworthyism I want us to land with today is this. You know you've made your political preference a higher allegiance than the kingdom win. This, when we make winning power for our side more important than reflecting the power of God's love to all. You know that you've made your highest allegiance to a political party or a political preference and not the kingdom win. We make winning power for our side more important than reflecting the power of God's love to all. You guys, it's easy to get caught up in defending God in the way that we engage politics. It's easy to get caught up in a culture war in a world that's changing. And, and hear me, like the law of Christ-informed heart and mind that we have, it should in, inform the way that we vote, but it's so much bigger than that. Because our role, I wish I had time to like spell this out. I've got some other teachings where we've done this, but our role is not to defend God, to fight a culture war for God. Our role as Jesus followers is to reflect God, to represent God in his grace to the world. So let's keep first things first and remember that our main role is to show God's love to all, not to win power. That's the whole John the Baptist conversation. That's the whole Psalm 47 misunderstood conversation. That's not the game that Jesus is playing. And the way that we do this and the way that we work and live in this political season It matters because in God's kingdom, the ends never justify the means. In other words, the way that we engage the process does not justify us getting the right answer or the right candidate. Hear me, and this might be hard to hear. This is hard for me to hear because of the ways that I've messed this up in the past. But if our methods are led by a spirit of belittling others, dehumanizing others, if it's led by selfishness or self-interest, greed, or the big one, fear, We've lost the plot. If our methods of engaging in the political system aren't led by mercy, justice for the oppressed, kindness, the fruit of the spirit, we are not putting God's kingdom first. We're putting our desire for power first. And don't misunderstand me. We can vote. We can get engaged politically, have strong opinions. But if those actions aren't fueled by love, but they're fueled by the grasping of power and fear, We miss God and our allegiance is out of whack. Our main goal should not be winning power for our side, 
but showing the power of God's love to all. And that changes the way that we engage in the process and our heart and our emotions that get caught up in this process because God's kingdom doesn't use power in the same way. It's upside down. It's about giving power away. It's about love and service and humility, not by ascending, but by descending. That's what lamb power looks like. So again, here's decision number two of today. This is what I'm asking you to consider and to commit to, that I will give my highest allegiance to the kingdom of God, to the king and his kingdom, not a political party or candidate. And when our, our allegiance is waning and when we feel the tension, we've got to lean towards the lamb and away from power through a political party or candidate. And if you're listening today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, like, I hope you know that, like, this is not something binding on you, but this is the way it should be done. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. And church people, religious people, we have messed this up so long, and I have been guilty. So many of us have been guilty. But this year, we want to get it right. And we, want to, we think that the world would be better when we give our highest allegiance to Jesus. Not to winning power not to the tribal political culture that we live in. Man, what could it look like? So last week, uh, I kind of did this tongue-in-cheek thing that um, I think ultimately was pretty powerful, and it's going to be a little awkward today since we're not in a room together. Um, but in the context of, you know, politics and government and all that kind of stuff, I asked us to, like, say a pledge that reflects this decision to give our, our highest allegiance to Jesus. Last week it was to not be a jerk. Um, and I wrote one around this decision today about allegiance as well. And so first I would just love to read it over us, wherever we are, um, that this is what it means to make this decision today. Um, and if you're, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this might not be for you at all, but I want you to hear that this is what it could look like. Even if church people <laughs> live this out, man, it would be a different world. Here's, here's the pledge. I'll just read it all at once. This year, during the presidential election cycle, I will give my highest allegiance to the kingdom of God, not a political party or candidate. I will live out my highest identity as a citizen of God's kingdom, not my political preferences. By God's grace, may my life display the power of God's love more than my love of winning power. May my life display the power of God's love more than my love of winning power. That's what lamb power looks like. That's what it looks like to pledge allegiance to the king above the kingdoms of this world. You guys, this is important because the only kingdom that will never end is the kingdom of God. And when I breathe my last breath, I'm not going to wake up in Washington, D.C. When I breathe my last breath, I'm not gonna, you're not going to find me at the Republican headquarters, the Democrat headquarters. When I breathe my last breath, I'm going to be in that eternal kingdom. So I want to put my eggs in the right basket. I want to give my allegiance to the one thing that matters most.